Welcome to History Hub's Educational Resources, a podcast series for all history students, young and old, from the School of History at University College Dublin. For more information on the series, go to historyhub.ie. Hello, my name is Paul Rouse, and this is a podcast from History Hub at the School of History in University College Dublin. The podcast is about economic change in Ireland in the 1950s. Now, the 1950s in Ireland were synonymous with economic failure, with emigration, with clerical repression, and with a general sense of gloom. Indeed, for much of the 1950s, there was little cause for optimism in Ireland. Instead, there was a looming sense that the entire project of Irish independence was on the verge of falling to pieces. On more than one occasion, the state almost ran out of money. It was also running out of people. Alone in Western Europe, the population of Ireland declined in the 1950s, falling beneath 3 million people. In general, the pessimism of the 1950s was rooted in persistent economic failures. But it was also rooted in the sense that there were no new ideas coming to the fore and that there was instead a return again and again to policies which had already been tried and had already failed. Nowhere was the sense that Ireland was running out of ideas more apparent than in the election of successive governments during the 1950s. The inter-party government led by John A. Costello had collapsed in May 1951. In the subsequent general election, Fianna Fáil was returned to office and Eamon de Valera was re-elected as Taoiseach. It was not a triumphant return for de Valera. The general election had not provided Fianna Fáil with a majority. Instead, they had had to rely on the support of five independent TDs to hold power. And more than that, three years in opposition had done nothing to revitalise Fianna Fáil. In fact, the new government was not new at all. De Valera was by then 69 and he brought back with him most of the old warriors who had served 16 years with him in cabinet between 1932 and 1948. It is not clear even whether the government wished to be back in power. The Minister for Industry and Commerce at that stage was Sean Damas and he admitted as much when he said, I did not relish the prospect of coming back into government in the conditions of 1951 at all. We had not really got down to clearing our minds on post-war development, he said. Now, in its own way, Lamassa's statement was a savage indictment of the failure of Irish politics. Some six years after the ending of World War I, there was still no clarity on how best to advance the future of the Republic of Ireland. What followed over the next three years of Fianna Fáil government between 1951 and 1954 was confusion. No clear vision of what the future might be emerged. The result was an inability to construct anything approaching a coherent programme for economic development. In 1952, the Fianna Fáil Minister for Finance, Sean McEntee, described the finances of the country as difficult almost to the point of desperation. In time, support for the government among independents ebbed away. A general election was called in May 1954, Fianna Fáil lost enough seats to allow the formation of a second inter-party government led by Fine Gael, just as they had done in 1948. All the opposition parties combined to form this government with John A. Costello as Taoiseach. This government was not a success. 
It was divided unto itself as to how to meet the challenges it faced and only unprecedented taxes prevented national bankruptcy in the spring of 1956. The measures which the government took to attempt to stabilise the economy undercut its popularity and it lost office in March 1957. The big surprise was that it had survived the best part of three years. At this point, it will come as no surprise to you that Fianna Fáil were returned to office and Eamon de Valera was returned as Taoiseach. De Valera was now 76 years of age. With him, once more, were many, though not all, of the old warriors who had been back in cabinet with him. There was no sense that much new was about to happen. It was now abundantly clear that the successive governments of Ireland in the 1950s were divided not by policy, but by history and by personality. These were men, and they were all men, who shared a broadly similar vision of Ireland, who, when in power, implemented broadly the same social and economic policies, and who, in truth, were separated simply by the fact that there had been a civil war in Ireland in the 1920s. That is not to say that there were not men who did not have new ideas, or who did not wish to suit change. There were, but they were all but drowned in a pool of political stagnation, And on top of this stagnation, the power of the Irish Catholic Church appeared to have reached new heights. Successive governments entered into negotiations with members of the Catholic hierarchy in advance of the construction of policy. Not alone did the Church control effectively much of the education system and the health system, entire areas of social policy of the state were also left in its control or its enormous influence. For example, it was in the 1950s that the control exercised by the Catholic religious orders over the necklace of reformatory and industrial schools was at its greatest. It was to be several decades before the implications of that secession of power were laid bare, but when it eventually happened, the consequences were shocking in their depravity. In general, the symbolism of the union of church and state was apparent on every state occasion. That Ireland was a Catholic country was left in no doubt to all observers. And there was no pretense that this was not the case. No sense that there was even the need for pretending that the power of the church did not reach the cabinet table. In 1955, for example, the Bishop of Cork, Cornelius Lucy, told a meeting in Killarney that the Irish Catholic bishops are, and I quote, the final arbiters of right and wrong in political matters. In other spheres, the state might, for its own good measure, ignore the social advice of experts, but in faith and morals, it might not. Against this backdrop of political stagnation and clerical power, three things happened, all of which are wrapped up in the same parcel. Firstly, the Irish economy collapsed. Secondly, emigration reached heights unwitnessed since the famine of the 1840s. And thirdly, economic collapse and that torrential emigration guaranteed that the vision which had sustained the first generation of politicians of independent Ireland was shattered. In fact, that vision was shattered to the point where it could not even be pretended that realising it remained a possibility. One of the best ways to examine how these three things affected the lives of ordinary Irish people is to look at agriculture, to look at farming. You must always remember that at this point, agriculture was at the very heart of the Irish economy. In fact, agriculture employed more people than the rest of the sectors of the Irish economy combined. This figure of 50% working in Irish agriculture compared with an average across Western Europe of less than 33% and a total in Britain of just 5%. In short, this was a country that was dominated 
by agriculture. And agriculture had a hold on the city, not just on the countryside. You can see, for example, that a cattle mart in the north inner city of Dublin, not far from the docks, was the biggest cattle mart in Europe. It was used for housing and selling cattle, most of whom were exported alive in the hold of ships going across the Irish Sea to Britain. And cattle being driven along the streets of Dublin to the mart and onto the docks was a regular feature of life in the city through the 1950s. But in the 1950s, the Irish agrarian economy exploded. Using money related to the Marshall Plan, the Irish government had envisaged that Irish agriculture would pull the country to prosperity by achieving, first of all, an increase of agricultural prosperity of 22.5% in just four years in the early 1950s. But when it turned, came out to it, the increase for the entire 1950s was just a miserable 2.5% increase. Worse than that, the volume of agricultural exports in the 1950s rose by just 0.5%. As this was happening, the country's politicians were initially in denial of this fact. The scale of political denial about the failures of the Irish economy seeped across all parties. It is perhaps best evidence in a speech given by Richard Mulcahy, the leader of Fine Gael, who claimed, the fact is that Ireland is one of the most contented countries in the world, only because the aspirations of the people are so low. In relation to the general aspirations of the Irish people, we have nearly everything what we want. Mulcahy's words were lampooned by the brilliant writer Flann O'Brien in Unbell Booked, where his mock hero, Bunaparta Kunisa, proclaimed, I was sunk in poverty, half dead from hunger and hardship, yet I failed to think of any pleasant object that I needed. Now, as we all now know, without any fear of contradiction, Irish people are just as interested in money and in material goods as the people of any other country. It was not merely escape from the bleakness of poverty, but even the most basic needs to survive, which defined what happened next. And what happened next was a mass exodus from the countryside. Let's look at the facts on this. In 1945, 522,000 men worked on Irish farms. Just 20 years later, in 1965, that number had fallen in half to just over 300,000. So that means that more than 200,000 men alone left the land in 20 years. And you must bear in mind that the number of women who left the land during this time was even greater than this. This exodus was the most eloquent of statements that the vision of a prosperous rural society in Ireland had been entirely shattered. Now the question was, where would they go? As I've said already, a similar exodus from rural areas took place all across the Western world in the 20th century. In most countries, industrial development provided employment for those who had previously worked on farms. This was not a possibility in Ireland, however, for all but a handful of people. For the failure of agriculture in Ireland was compounded by the failure of industry. During the 1950s, Irish industrial output increased by just 1.3% a year. All across the world, industrial development saw a boom, but not in Ireland. And worse than that, the number of people employed in Irish industry during this period actually decreased by 14%. Again, in direct contrast to the trends of the rest of the Western world. What made Irish economic failure all the worse was the sense that everywhere else things were going well. All across the world, economies recorded record advances. In America, for example, GNP, gross national product, rose from 200 
billion dollars to $500 billion in the years between 1945 and 1960. Driving this increase was a revitalized motor industry, a new industry such as electronics and aviation, and a remarkable housing boom. Around this wealth, a new consumerism developed, perhaps best evidenced by the fact that in 1945, there were just eight shopping centres in America, but by the end of the 1950s, there were almost 4,000. And in Britain, between 1955 and 1960 alone, average weekly earnings rose by 34%. Again, an unprecedented rate of growth. This left more people than ever with a certain amount of disposable income. Before the Second World War, goods such as televisions, refrigerators, music systems and cars had been utterly luxurious items, available only to the most privileged sections of society. But in the 1950s, this all changed. For example, car ownership in Britain rose by 250% between 1951 and 1961. This cycle of consumerism was the tide on which all economic boats rose. The contrast between, on the one hand, the booming consumerist economies of Britain and America, and on the other, the stagnation of of agrarian Ireland was stark. The result, a mass exodus of the unemployed and the underemployed from Ireland. Even at the remove of 50 years, the scale of the exodus seems staggering. In the second half of the 1940s, about 150,000 Irish people emigrated. Then, during the 1950s and the rest of them, and into the early 60s, the floodgates truly opened and 500,000 Irish people emigrated. This was equivalent to almost one in six of the population leaving the land, leaving the island, in fact. In the middle of the decade, the number of emigrants almost exceeded the number of births as the Irish population declined again and again, reaching just 2.9 million in 1961. And by the end of the 1960s, in Britain alone, there were almost one million people living in that country, on that island, who had been born in the Republic of Ireland. Again, I say, more women left than men. Some were qualified nurses who found work in the expanding National Health Service, but most of the women who left found work in menial labour. In fact, six out of ten women who left the country ended up as domestic servants in houses across Britain. Usually, the men who emigrated also ended up in manual labour. There were a small collection of university graduates who ended up working as, say, dentists and doctors. But most of the men who left had only ever been to primary school or had done at most a sliver of secondary school. Some who left were as young as 15. They dug tunnels for the tube system in London, built motorways, worked in factories, and of course laboured on building sites all across Britain, in big cities and in small towns. Now this very, the very extent of the failure of the Irish economy, the very extent of the, ex, of, of the numbers of people who were emigrating, made change inevitable. It became no longer possible to pretend that everything was fine. The traditional assumptions on which the Irish economy had long been based were now progressively abandoned. A series of interrelated developments allowed for the Irish economy to move away from dependence on agriculture and to look instead to promote industrial development. The first development was a project coordinated by a civil servant called T.K. Whitaker. Whitaker had been appointed Secretary of the Department of Finance in 1956. In the early months of 1957, he assembled a team of fellow civil servants who began to work in small groups to produce a report which would analyse the state of the Irish economy 
and which would look at ways to make that economy grow. The result was the publication in May 1958 of a 250-page report, which was simply called Economic Development. This report brought a whole range of departmental and governmental contributions in the intervening months, and it formed the core of a new government white paper, which was called the Programme for Economic Expansion. This Programme for Economic Expansion was published in November 1958 and was intended to act as a blueprint for the Irish economy and its development from 1958 to 1963. So what did the programme propose? Interestingly, it still stressed that agriculture should drive the economy, most notably through increased export of cattle and beef. This was sensible and indeed an inevitable proposal in some respects. After all, beef and cattle exports continue to earn a lot of money for the country. The problem was not that beef and cattle was earning a lot of money for the country, of course. It was that few other exports were raising money. However, the programme showed, and this is really important, that agriculture was no longer seen as the future of the Irish economy in the most basic way imaginable. That is, in the money it provided for the development of investment, true investment. Across the five years of the programme for economic expansion, it was proposed to invest some £53.4 million pounds in the Irish economy. But less than £14 million of that £53 million was to go to agriculture. All of the key investments in the programme were targeted at promoting industry. Systems were set up, for example, to allow better access to loans and for the courting of foreign investment, as well as improved grants to new industries and tax relief for manufactured exports. The courtship of foreign investment is particularly interesting. In 1932, the Fianna government had introduced the Control of Manufacturers Act, which had placed narrow restrictions on the use of foreign capital in Ireland. The idea was to ensure that the Irish industry, or that Irish industry in general, was owned by Irish citizens. For all that this held a certain logic for a government pursuing a protectionist agenda, it had the effect of dramatically restricting much-needed investment. Now, in 1958, this policy was reversed. A new act, Industrial Development, the Encouragement of External Investment Act, was passed. The ambition of this new act was to attract foreign investment from companies to come and set up in Ireland and to use this country as a base from which to export. All of this made an almost immediate difference. By 1965, 80% of all Irish investment through industry came from foreign capital. And through the 1960s, 350 new foreign companies were established in Ireland. In general, foreign investment facilitated major advances in the industrial sector, which was largely responsible for overall economic growth through the programme for economic expansion and its duration. It should be said that agricultural output remained frustratingly low, but Irish industry finally began to take off. And with this, the Irish economy took a leap forwards. From having had the slowest growth rate of any European economy in the 1950s, economic growth in Ireland reached 4% per year in the years between 1958 and 1963. This equaled the achievements of many European companies and was actually higher than that achieved by Britain. The sense of a new dawn, uh, and certainly the dawn of a new era, at the end of the 1950s was compounded by the department by the departure from the office of Taoiseach of Eamon de Valera in the summer of 1959. 
de Valera had been in failing health through the 1950s. More particularly, he had passed months on end in the Netherlands being operated on and receiving care for his eyes, and he was essentially blind by the end of the decade. In 1959, he actually stood for the presidency of Ireland and was duly elected by a relatively narrow majority over the Fine Gael candidate Sean McKeown. De Valera was replaced as Taoiseach by his long-time deputy, Sean Lamass. Although Lamass was, like De Valera, a veteran of the 1916 Rising, the fact that he was actually 17 years younger lent credence to the idea that this was a new beginning. And this is the sense. The political project was beginning to renew itself, on the one hand. Number two, there was a staunch in the numbers of people who were emigrating. There there was still large-scale emigration from Ireland in the 1920s. But this began to change. Number three, agriculture remained central to the Irish economy, but it was rebalancing slowly, steadily, painfully in certain cases with a growth in importance in industry. And this ultimately laid the scenes together with the remarkable opening up, finally, of Irish education to a greater swathe of the population when it comes to secondary education, the seeds of the long-term economic development of Ireland. Thank you for listening.